Okay, well, I'm going to wrap that and uh, go into the, the teaching tonight. I want to make sure I have plenty of time because there's always a little bit of introduction and then we'll do this first chapter. So uh, open your Bibles to the book of Acts as we start and I'll open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we're back. We're here after a, a good long break this summer. And Father, you have uh, you've kept each of us over this time and have grown us in, in different ways. And we've all uh, had opportunity, Father, along the way to to study perhaps or to, to consider Scripture in, in song or in word or in our own quiet time. And Father, you've also been good to bring us back here tonight and to continue this, this group that we enjoy so much and that you have been so faithful to help us grow through the teaching in this group and to grow through fellowship. And, and so, Father, we thank you that we're back. We look forward, Father, to what you have for us in this new book. We know, Father, that uh, we will each endeavor in our own way to understand it and to share in, in the wisdom you've provided through the stories and through the experiences of the apostles. But, but Father, more than anything, we, we ask that you would continue in all the days and all the weeks that we meet here to make the content in this book personal. Show it to us, Father, as it was intended to be understood in our lives, not just in some general sense, but bring us to an understanding, Father, of where our life could be different. Help us to know why the scriptures were provided for our benefit and and uh, give us diligence, Father, patience and diligence and opportunity to see this study through, to be a student at the feet of Christ as we study in this, in this work. And we thank you, Father, for Wayside, for the provision of a building for those who've uh, made possible this opportunity to meet. And we ask along the way that you would collect more and bring more and uh, give us greater opportunity to share what we learn with others. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Acts is a special book in the New Testament in, in numerous ways and one that many Christians have debated over. It's a book that generates a lot of debate and a lot of controversies along the way, in part because there's a consistent question in the mind of most Bible students for how much of what was taught in this book should be applicable in the world today or in the church today or, or should be a model for the church today. Those are ever-present questions, and we'll look at many of them as we go through the book. To put it simply, it's a historical account of the apostles and the spread of the church outward from Jerusalem following Jesus' resurrection. The book is probably misnamed historically. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. That's the full name of the work from antiquity. But it really only covers the work of two apostles principally, Peter and Paul, and even then only a portion of their work. So it's hardly a comprehensive addressing of all the apostles and all that they did. It's really very focused you could argue it's more really a focus on Jesus, though he's not named except in, in early chapters and occasionally thereafter. But in reality, it's covering the work that he does in building his church as he claimed he would do by his word and by the spirit. And then the men of the story are really just instruments that he's using along the way. So by way of introduction, let's note some of the uniquenesses of the book and also the author and then the structure. This is the way I typically approach every study. As a student, I want to find structure. I want to find patterns. I want to see what is the fabric that knits the whole story together. I don't want to treat it just as little isolated vignettes or, or passages, because though I may find success in understanding a passage when I do that, I probably lose the more important meaning by divorcing it from the context. So I'm always looking for patterns. And there are some patterns that drive this story. Let's start, though, with uh, why this book is so unique. It's, it's unique both in obvious ways, I guess, as well as in some surprising ways. For example, it's, it's the only New Testament narrative 
apart from the Gospels, and together with the four Gospels, it forms a kind of New Testament Pentateuch. In the same way that the Old Testament opens with five very foundational works that Jews call their Torah, the five first books of the Bible, or in Greek, the Pentateuch. This book seems to be a bookend to the four Gospels, such that when you take them together, you have a Pentateuch of sorts in the narrative of the New Testament. It's a bridge also between the life of Messiah and of the New Testament epistles. So you know that just by looking at the sequencing of your books in the New Testament, it forms a bridge between the Gospels and all the epistles. It's uh, Thirdly, it's the only record we have of how the Gentile church was birthed out of Judaism. Because in the Gospels, the offer of the kingdom is squarely on the Jews. This book forms that bridge that shows how you move from a church centered in Jerusalem among Jews to a worldwide institution largely centered on Gentiles. The author, as we know, as you may know, is Luke, the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And it's more than likely the case that he wrote it as a single work. He probably wrote the the combined work of Luke and Acts over a period of years, over several years. But when you look at them as a single work together, they comprise 25% of the New Testament. And he's the only Gentile author in the entire Bible. Speaking of the author, let's talk about him for a moment. Luke's a fascinating study on his own. He was a traveling companion and the close friend and personal physician of the Apostle Paul. According to an early prologue for the book of Acts, this was a prologue that was attached to the front of the book of Acts somewhere around the second century. That prologue tells the story of how Paul converted Luke during one of Paul's first missionary journeys. And from the moment of Luke's conversion, he followed Paul thereafter. Curiously, he writes in the third person all the way until he reaches chapter 8. And then in chapter 8, when Paul's in Troas, he starts talking in the first person, we. And that's been used, among other pieces of evidence, to suggest that Luke was actually a citizen of Troas. That's where Paul met him. That's where he was converted. And he started accompanying Paul from that point forward. So Luke never met Christ. He never was an apostle. Certainly he was a Gentile. Luke remained unmarried for his whole life, without children, of course. And he did that in devotion to Paul's work, following Paul as a missionary with Paul. And he died at the age of 84. Without Luke's record in the book of Acts, some of the things Paul wrote himself in the epistles about his own life as a missionary couldn't be understood because the history of what's recorded in Acts gives us the context to fully understand what Paul was writing about. So the book of Acts is crucial in some cases to fully appreciating the New Testament epistles. Putting a date to it is actually fairly easy. We know that it captures most of Paul's missionary journeys, so it has to happen after those journeys had already taken place. That's obvious. But it's also notably silent on Paul's death and even on the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So if we were to assume that those events would have been captured in the letter had they occurred already, then that would put the writing of the letter somewhere shortly before Paul died, somewhere between 60 and 62 A.D. That would mean that the book covers roughly 30 years of human history from the time we start in chapter 1 tonight until the end. Then finally, before we start the text, let's look at the structure of this book. The book of Acts has several structures, and they work together. Think of them like layers in a cake. The book is a record of the outward movement of the church during Luke's lifetime. And by outward, I mean it begins in Jerusalem. It eventually arrives in Rome. 
And if you look at the record of the book, the plot line of the work, it's a one-way arc from God's city to the enemy's city, from Jerusalem to Rome. It begins in Jerusalem, it ends at Rome, and it moves in one direction. It never goes backward. The kingdom of God moving steadily outward from where it starts to overcome the world. That's one structure, and we'll see that come up from time to time. Secondly, the story presents the gospel taking root first among Jews, then among Samaritans, finally among Gentiles. And all three are important. By the way, that's a fulfilling of Jesus' words to the woman at the well in John 4 when she, as a Samaritan, asked, do I worship here or do I worship in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, well, salvation is of the Jews, but it will unite Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles eventually worshiping in spirit and truth. Third structure, Luke focuses on the ministry of Peter in the first part of the book and the ministry of Paul in the latter part of the book. And as you know, Peter was the leader of the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Paul was self-described as the apostle to the Gentiles. So Luke's two-part treatment alludes to this eventual transformation of the church from being largely Jewish into one that becomes largely Gentile. In all of these examples, you notice it's linear. It's a movement in one direction reflecting changes or plans that have a one-way nature to them. Uh, I mentioned a moment ago that this book is commonly a source of some controversy because people wonder, is the book a model for how church should be done in some context? And it can be. Every book of the Bible can be. But these patterns start to inform us about what really should we take from the fact that the church started a certain way, but then moved to a new form later. Started with certain people, moved to new people later. Started in a certain place, moved to another place later. It begins to suggest that movement in the nature of the church is not unexpected. That means we're not necessarily looking to preserve it in some simple form forever. That's a part of these, this, the structure here starts to reinforce that thinking, and we'll look at that as we look through the book, of course. So that's the introduction. Tonight we're going to study chapter 1, and in reality, chapter 1 is itself Luke's introduction. Let's start with verses 1 through 5. I'll read those. Acts 1.1, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself, alive, after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Beginning with that short passage, Luke wrote Acts to document the events after Jesus' ascension. So chapter 1 of his work here becomes a bridge for himself to move from a gospel account to the, the account of what the apostles themselves are doing. So he's using chapter 1 to bridge the two. And he begins this book almost exactly the same way he began the book of, of the gospel of Luke. Theophilus, this strange or, or mysterious character that he's writing to. His name means loved or, or lover of God in Greek. And in the Gospel account, Luke titles him most excellent. Theophilus, that's a title of rank. So it would suggest the man has some rank, perhaps as a Roman official, which would imply also that he has wealth. And that would be fitting given the nature of what people did in that day. The way people wrote in that day, a man like Luke would be commissioned to write a work like this. So... 
it's fair to conclude that this man was likely Luke's benefactor. He probably supported Luke's ministry. And if that's true, he might have also been supporting Paul's ministry. Now, concerning his purpose, he intimates here that the gospel was just the beginning of the record. He said, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, remember, Jesus, by the end of Luke's gospel, he's resurrected and he's ascended at the end of chapter 24. But he doesn't say all that he did. He says all that he began to do. The implication is, what I'm now going to write you is what he continued to do, or how he continued that work in a different way. In Luke 24, Jesus is seen to depart this way, just a few verses. He's 24, verse 50, this is how it ends. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. That's how he left the scene at the end of that gospel. But now Luke gives more detail. You notice he says there's a little bit more involved in the departure than I gave you the last time. And he begins to fill in some of the detail. Verse 2, he says, Jesus conveyed orders to the apostles. And then Luke says the orders were delivered by means of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus was standing there when he gave him the orders. And yet it says he delivered the orders by means of the Holy Spirit. What's the significance of that? What would it mean to us today to say the words were delivered by the Holy Spirit? The means of revelation, whether it's through the Word of God or through some other method, is always a ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's a biblical principle, and Luke is reflecting that biblical principle here. That the biblical principle is this. Spiritual truth cannot be understood by flesh, by natural men. Our earthly-born abilities do not extend into the spiritual realm. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 2. Verse 12, he says, Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. So Paul says, I've received things by the Spirit. My ability to convey it to you must also be by the Spirit. Combining, he says, spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Then he says in verse 14, But a natural man, which is a reference to somebody who is not guided by the Spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him and cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Paul's saying, look, I have words given to me that I'm conveying to you. The process by which I receive them must be the same process by which you take them from me. Something spiritually given must be spiritually transferred. And the natural man can't accept what I'm saying, Paul would say. Because though I'm speaking spiritual truth given to me by the Spirit, if he's not receiving them by that same Spirit, it's a disconnect. When Luke here says that the apostles received these instructions from Christ by way of the Holy Spirit, it is a demonstration of the same principle, that Jesus' words would have been a mystery to these men had they not been informed or made understandable by the Spirit working in them in the moment. Luke now makes clear that the instructions Jesus gave them were received through the Holy Spirit in their life so that we would understand they got it. Because if you had just read Luke's account, he is continually emphasizing, at least three different times particularly, that the the apostles would hear something spoken and yet not understand it. If you had been following Luke's account and got to this point and then you hear Jesus leaving them with orders, your first thought might be, oh, here we go again. What are these guys going to do with this stuff? Well, he says they got it by way of the Holy Spirit. They know, they understood what they were told. Then verse 4 through 8, of which I've read, Luke addresses the instructions themselves that Jesus delivered. First, he told them, don't leave Jerusalem. 
Now, that's a significant instruction because if you remember, they are still probably threatened by the religious leadership. There's probably uh, you know, a number of things they'd be afraid of. And so remaining in the city is a very dangerous prospect for them. So they've taken that choice or they've taken that instruction to heart. Um, they're told to stay there because they have something to receive. The Father has promised them something. Uh, two verses give you that background in John's Gospel. In John 15:26, Jesus says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about Me, and you will testify also, because you have been with Me from the beginning. Jesus says, you need to stay in Jerusalem because the Father is going to be keeping His promise and sending the Holy Spirit. Then, Jesus says, you're going to be baptized in this new way through the Holy Spirit. Though before you were baptized by water. He describes the moment of the giving of the Helper, which we now call Pentecost, as a moment of baptism in the Holy Spirit. First thing I'll say up front is Acts is not a book of theology. Luke is simply recording history. And not every event of history is the source of theology. Jesus emphasizes that there is a greater baptism coming for these men, greater than the one they experienced with John done by water. And that is true. But that alone reflects sort of the perspective of baptism in the Scripture. Baptism in Scripture is done by the Holy Spirit and then pictured by water. So the real baptism of our faith is by the Holy Spirit. The one we do in water is a picture of the earlier one or a kind of reenactment of it, if you will, with water taking the place of the Holy Spirit. The first one saves you. The second one just gets you wet. But that second one's important because God has commanded through Christ, the church, to be witnesses of the baptism of the Holy Spirit by making this outward sign something that others can see and appreciate. So the outward sign is important to God and it is a step of obedience to the believer. But it is not uh, of the same significance spiritually as the former. In fact, it has no meaning at all without the former already being true in the person's life. In this case, and here's where the theology becomes controversial, in this case, the two events are reversed in sequence. These men had already been baptized by water. Now they're receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the promised helper. And the apostles, and in fact, uh, quite a number of other first century believers, experienced water baptism prior to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That reversal was purposeful in the first century church, and we're going to explore why when we reach later moments in the book that, uh, that address it in a better moment. I don't want to try to pull it into this part of the text. It's not really necessary yet. In our experience today, water follows the spirit baptism. One creates the need for the other. But in the early first century church, there were men following Christ who had received water baptism, but yet were still waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the question then arises for why the difference. And we'll get to that as we go into the book. This opening sequence of verses leads the disciples to, to ask a question of Jesus because of what he just said. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord... Is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So why do the apostles ask this question at this point? It seems off topic, perhaps, until you start to dig it up a little bit. Luke begins this verse with the Greek adverb aun, which means therefore. And it shows you that his intent was to connect this question to what has just been talked about earlier. Jesus said something that triggered this question. Specifically, the instructions Jesus gave the disciples, go to Jerusalem, 
Wait there. The Holy Spirit's coming and you'll be baptized by the Holy Spirit. That triggered this question. The Old Testament prophets had promised that there would be a future day when the arrival of the Messiah would come. And on that day of the arrival of the Messiah, the nation of Israel would receive an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon Israel, commensurate with the coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah, would result in all of them coming into a faithful walk with their Messiah. And how often did we see in Isaiah exactly that scene coming to bear in the text? That's in Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12, verse 10, through the first verse of chapter 13. That scene is immediately prior to Christ's second coming, when the nation of Israel is under the siege of the Antichrist, and as a result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they come to faith in Christ and receive their Messiah, which prompts Christ's return. That's, that's what brings Christ back to earth, is the call of, of the nation of Israel. Well, if you're a Jewish man who's been taught in the Old Testament, you know that's the promise. You may not understand it fully, of course. You don't really understand how it's all going to take place. But then you hear your Messiah say, go back to Jerusalem to receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Your first thought is, this is Zechariah 12. We're about to see the nation of Israel brought into her kingdom. And so they say, is this when you're ready to stand up the kingdom for Israel? Jesus answers in verse 7 and 8. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus says, now is not that time. And he uses a typical Greek phrase. He says, times or epochs or epochs. You may have times or seasons in your version. The distinction is, you won't know the timeline, nor the circumstances. Seasons refers to the circumstances that will be going on in the future. So you won't know the timeline, you won't know when, nor will you know the circumstances necessarily. Now, do we know the times and the circumstances? Well, we'll never know the time in terms of a specific date. But we have been given the circumstances out of New Testament prophecy. What Jesus was telling these men was, you will not know the times or the circumstances. Those who live in the immediately preceding months and years before Christ's return, they will have even greater knowledge of the times and the circumstances. You see, the revelation of those details gets greater as you get closer to the event without it necessarily telling you exactly the moment. These men were too far away from it to have that insight. So they didn't need to know it. They had other duties. They had other responsibilities. He says, the time is fixed by the authority of the Father, and that's not something you're going to know. Does that remind you of something else in the New Testament? Matthew 24, when Jesus says in 24:36, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Speaking about the same event, about the return of Christ. But then Jesus turns to the substance of their concerns. I mean, when you really get down to it, they weren't asking him for the times or the epochs, right? What they were asking him for was... Why are we being baptized by the Holy Spirit? Is it because this is the moment we've been waiting for? And Jesus says, no, it's not that moment. But then he deals with the substance. The substance of their concern is, why do I need the baptizing of the Holy Spirit? What is this achieving for me or for the kingdom? Jesus says, though it's not going to result in the promised kingdom of Israel, that's a future event, it is going to result in the power for you to establish a different kind of kingdom. So they are going to be at work in building a kingdom. It's just not going to be the kingdom they thought it was going to be, not in, in exactly the same way. It's a different kind of kingdom. They're going to start one in Jerusalem. 
that he says will extend all Judea to Samaria and then outward to the rest of the world, which is the Gentile nations. That's the marching orders. Go out to the rest of the world with the gospel. Start where you are. Work here. Work outward from here. Go further. Go further as far as God takes you. So the book then goes chronicling from this point forward how the apostles received that power, the power to perform miracles, the power to teach with authority, and then using that power to impress upon people the truth of the gospel. And they move outward from here with that power and with that truth. Verse 9, after Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. I tried to imagine as I was reading this what that feeling must have been like. I can imagine what it looked like, I guess, but more than that, I tried to imagine what did it feel like to these guys. They'd already gone through the first experience of thinking him dead, finding him alive again, almost in disbelief, finally coming to understand he was back alive again, 40 days with him now, off and on, and an assumption that his resurrection was the final event. That proved his power. He must now be conquering the world with his power. This, this is it. The kingdom is here. Now to watch him leave again. And not sure at all when he's coming back. There's certainly no indication of that. And so you get this almost comical scene if you had been on the road a distance from them, looking at them standing, 11 guys out in the middle of a road, all of them staring up at the sky. Just staring. Have you ever seen somebody do that and other people walk around looking to see what they're looking at? In fact, the word in Greek literally means a fixed stare on some cloud. They must have looked like fools, really. And that, you almost wonder if God didn't pity them and that's why he sent the angel down to say, hey, okay, enough of this. Move along, move along. And I almost wonder if they thought he might reemerge. You know, he goes into a cloud. It's very clear what Luke says. He doesn't go into heaven from where they can see. They see him go literally like a plane into a cloud, and then you wonder, is he going to come out from behind the cloud? Is he going to come back down? You don't know where he, what happened. How long is he going to stay up there? And that's what I think the angels are helping with, is the understanding that, yeah, he's gone. It's not just that he's temporarily out of sight. And then he gives this nudge. Don't worry, he's going to come back in the same way that you saw him come. It's interesting that he makes that comment. When's the next time anyone in the faith will see Christ? And I'll, I'll leave out for the moment people like Paul who saw him on the road. I'm talking in the, in the global sense. It'll be the rapture, won't it? And how was that supposed to take place according to, to 1 Thessalonians and uh, 1 Corinthians? In the blink of an eye, in the clouds. Which seems to be consistent, I think, with what you're hearing here. That may be the reference. It could also, of course, be a reference simply to his second coming, which is him coming on the clouds with the, with the believers in, in Revelation 19. So I think either one is possible, certainly. Look at the instructions about how they obey in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. They had been on the Mount of Olives, that's the departure of Christ took place on the Mount of Olives. That's also significant for, for what the angel said. The angel said, just as you see him, he will also return. Well, we know that the place of his return into Jerusalem is from the Mount of Olives into the gate of the city that, that faces the Mount of Olives. So that's also significant. They return, it says here, 
uh, about the distance of a Sabbath day journey. That's a, a colloquialism of, of Hebrew that means about a three-quarter mile walk. Based on the fact that on a Sabbath day you couldn't walk very far. So it's a three-quarter mile walk off that mount into the city. They end up in the upper room. This is the same upper room where they shared the Last Supper six weeks earlier. They've been staying there apparently since the resurrection. And they're still there now in the city. It's kind of a home base, I guess, for the apostles. And it's apparently a large room because, as you're going to see here in a minute, there's 120 people now in this room in addition to the 11. So the 11 are listed there. They're named. And with them, we're told, are Mary. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, is still with this crowd, with this group. That would make sense because who's her caretaker? John, if you remember from his gospel. And then even more interesting to me is the fact that Jesus' brothers are here. And that's significant because in John 7, verse 5, there's a specific statement of Scripture that says that Jesus' brothers were not believing in him at that point in Jesus' ministry while he was still alive. So somewhere between then and now, the brothers have caught on and, and become believers probably after the resurrection is the likely timing. That means men like James, who wrote the letter of James, or Jude, for that matter, these are men who were brothers of Jesus and yet and did not believe until after the resurrection. They are now told to be in this room, faithfully praying in a unified way. What are they praying about? What's the likely topic of prayer for them? I think the only obvious answer is in relationship to what Jesus just told them a few minutes earlier, the Holy Spirit's arrival. So they're probably praying for or in conjunction with the promise of the helper arriving. And here's another reason to think they're probably doing that. They're in Jerusalem because they've been told to stay there, not because this is where they want to be necessarily. Many of them would feel threatened in this city. So the only reason they're staying is to get the Holy Spirit. As soon as they get him, many of them would probably leave at that point. So the prayer is probably directed toward make this happen sooner than later so we can move on because we don't want to be in the city any longer than we have to at this point. It's dangerous. It's a natural thing to feel. We've all been there in some way. Finally, then, we get the selecting of the replacement apostle to finish Luke's introduction. We're going to read from 15 to 26. And and then, of course, cover it as we come through it. Verse 15. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field was called Hakeldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. And let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us from uh, all the time that Jesus, that Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, know who the hearts, no, sorry, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. First, let's just look at what happens. Note that Peter takes the initiative here. That's consistent with his role. He's seen as the leader in the early church. He was really showing that all the way back into the time of the Gospels. 
In some Protestant circles, you find people hesitant to put a label on Peter as the leader. I think because they wonder if that isn't endorsing the Catholic view, which makes him Pope in their way of saying it. I don't think you have to assume one goes with the other. He was a leader in a church of leaders. He was a predominant leader. He had a predominant role, but there was never, there's never any suggestion in the book of Acts or in any of the epistles that everything that happened in the first century church went through Peter or that he decided on, on the basis of everything that happened. He was included in many important decisions, as you'd expect, but he wasn't alone in those decisions, and he certainly didn't make every decision for the church. So, in other words, it's clear that he was a leader, but it's also clear that the model of leadership that the Bible presents here and elsewhere is not the modern model that dominates the Catholic Church or even many Protestant denominations. It was a distributed model of many men holding leadership positions and guiding in their own regions or in their own churches from that perspective of leader and working together among other leaders to confirm that they were all doing things in a common way. So that was, that's really the closest thing you get to a model for leadership out of the book of Acts. So we note that Peter took the initiative and he's here to solve a problem. And the problem he's going to bring up is the one that everyone in the room has probably been thinking about for the last 40 days. Jesus picked 12. Eleven's an awfully odd number. And after Judas dies, it probably became almost, you know, if not right away, certainly fairly soon after that, it became an obvious question. What are we doing about the one that's missing? Do we need another one? Shouldn't we have one? He picked 12. Maybe it should be 12. Peter here is probably thinking about two things. First, what he quotes here out of the Psalms, which we'll look at in a minute. But I would also argue that it's probably the case that he remembers something Jesus told them in Matthew 19.28, recorded in, in Matthew 19.28. And that was that the twelve apostles were granted or given a special role in the kingdom to come, that of ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, twelve men promised ruling over twelve tribes, and now you're down to eleven men, begs a big question. Is there a tribe without somebody now, or are we just going to have to fill that spot? I assume Peter saw that obvious disconnect, felt there was a need to deal with it, and then God, through the Spirit, brought to mind the Psalms and what the Psalms had said prophetically about Judas himself. And the two together gave Peter the clear initiative to say, this is what we should do. Let's take note of what he says about the guy, because it's kind of fascinating, really, what he says. First, he mentions these graphic details to the manner of death. He says himself that the death of Judas was known to all who were living in Jerusalem. So it's hardly a matter of him having to explain it for the sake of somebody who showed up late. There's, there's not a concern there. Everyone knows about it. And presumably they know about the manor as well. So the first question is, why this, this graphic description, the fact that he was thrown down headlong, and the, the picture that's supposed to describe in the Greek is somebody being tossed or thrown and then headlong kind of tumbling down. Not that he threw himself, but somebody threw him. That's the sense of the word. And then, the, the even better details, his intestines burst out. Why that? And then you add to that one more piece of detail out of Matthew. In Matthew 27, we're told specifically that he hangs himself, that Judas hangs himself. So now you have several questions coming together. Why repeat the description of the death in the course of this moment? Why be so graphic about it? And then, why is it a different description than the one that we're given in Matthew 27? Well, the answer first is Judas did hang himself. We're not saying that Matthew 27 is wrong by any account. But he hanged himself on Passover. On the day that Jesus died, he hanged himself on Passover. A dead body 
on the day of Passover would defile anyone who comes in contact with it and couldn't be buried because that's a that's a, a day when you wouldn't have anybody dare touch a body. The next two days that week were Sabbath days, so you wouldn't have had anybody uh, touching, uh, burying or working to bury a body. So the body couldn't have been buried or prepared for burial for two days after it had been dead, already hanging. And there was also in Deuteronomy a requirement in the law that you would not see a man left hanging overnight because the body would be considered a curse to be left hanging that way into a Sabbath overnight. The same reason why they, got a, they wanted to get Jesus off the cross before the sunfall was his body would be considered a curse if it was left overnight. So it was a rush to get Jesus in the grave. Presumably, a city that was very conscious about Passover and about the need to remain ceremonially clean would have gone to great lengths to find someone, a Roman probably, who was willing to get Judas off that noose and get rid of his body before sundown. And they weren't going to take time to bury the guy or prepare him for burial. And outside the city was a, a place called the Valley of Hinnon. And it was a place outside the city of Jerusalem, down from the hill of Jerusalem, that they dumped refuse and trash. The city was, it was a city trash dump. And they would also throw dead animal carcasses out there and the bodies of, of criminals who were uh, crucified would also be thrown on this heap. Now, what do you do with a big heap of decaying material like that? You've got to deal with it somehow. And the way they dealt with it was they lit a fire and they burned it. So it was a continually burning heap of decaying flesh and trash. Not a great place, right? The real estate around that area was pretty cheap. And that area, the Valley of Hinnon, which is known in Greek as Gehinnon or Gehenna, became the word for hell because it became a picture of hell, a burning dump of refuse. The fire never was quenched. So that became where we get the word hell from Gehenna, from that Valley of Hinnon. That's likely where his body ended up. So his body is probably taken off the noose quickly, headlong, thrown into the valley, onto the pile of refuse. That's the reference to being thrown headlong. And what does a body that's decaying do? Eventually it bursts open, I mean, just from the, from the decaying process. Kind of going to the story here in verse 19, it says that his own field became field of blood. The story behind that is that, you remember he returned the money to the temple? threw it back at them and said, I shouldn't have done this, take your money back. And then all the Pharisees, in this same kind of uh, cultural hypocrisy, they all look at each other and say, well, we can't take the money back, that was blood money. And it's like self-denial. They're the ones who made the whole thing possible, but now they're too good to take the money back that was used to kill somebody. So they say, we have to do something else with this money, we can't put it back in the treasury because it's blood money now. So they go off and they use it to buy a, an available field just to get the money spent. And technically, under Jewish law, that money belonged to Judas, therefore the field belonged to him, even though he didn't personally buy it. So what that ensured was that since a dead man owned the field, the field would never be used by anybody. It became a fallow field. And that's in fulfillment to what he says in verse 20 here out of Psalms. It's actually coming out of Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is talking about a future man, unnamed man, of course, a future man who would betray the Messiah. And Psalm 69 goes on to say in the verse that's quoted here in, in verse 20, that his homestead be made desolate, let no one dwell in it. The, the way that came to be was in the way this field was purchased with blood money and his field was never used after that, at least until Jerusalem was destroyed and no one cared after that. But at this point, it's called the field of blood for that reason. So it's a kind of living memorial to what Judas did, created out of this strange set of Jewish custom and, and law. So why was he graphic to begin with? Because he's trying to remind everyone here, 
that the death of Judas was punishment in itself to fulfill Scripture. That what he did was so onerous that God ensured that the history of how it occurred would leave a field desolate in his name as a memorial to it. And so Peter emphasizes the nature of the man's death because normally a Jewish man would never have had that kind of ignominious death where his body was left to decay. That would have been very unlikely for anyone. But for this man, it's a purposeful mentioning to remind everyone that his judgment was just and it was due him for what he did. And now he's going to the next step. He's saying, well, if Psalm 69 was talking about Judas this whole time, and we see that proven by the field, then he jumps to another psalm, Psalm 109, which has a similar narrative. Psalm 109 at one point also addresses this future betrayer of the Messiah. But in that psalm, it adds another piece of detail. The extra piece of detail there is, let another man take his office. So by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter has put two and two together. He said, you know, we need 12 because Christ said we'll have 12 judges over the tribes of Israel. We only have 11. And in the Psalms, we now know that Judas is this guy that we've heard about would betray. And that betrayer is going to have no no homestead. And the betrayer has to be replaced. Ergo, we have to get a 12th man. So he's making good use of Scripture, good sense of Scripture. Uh, I thought as I looked at this and, and made a note to myself for future reference, for future preaching material, For those who would say Scripture is not practical, here's a good example of how in Peter's life it was eminently practical. It directed him in a very specific thing that God needed done by someone at a very specific moment for the sake of fulfilling Scripture. Now, that's not a promise to us that we'll have that kind of opportunity at each turn. No one would say that, of course. But it is to say that the consulting of Scripture can be surprisingly relevant to your own circumstances if you're open to it. But he had to have known Psalm 69, Psalm 109, And, of course, the circumstances of his immediate past in order to put all of that together. Had he not read the Psalms, where would he have been? Obvious, a parallel for us is as we struggle in some point in our life, absent the direction of the Lord and we don't have the answer. I wonder if it's because we haven't read something that's been waiting for us. Now, acting in faith, what does he do? Peter takes the initiative. It's interesting that Peter doesn't assume he has the initiative or the authority. Rather, he doesn't have the authority to make this decision on his own. Here again, I think this contradicts a mythical view of how Peter was the first pope or or was the early leader. If we were to carry it out in the way it's typically thought today, you would have expected him to turn to people in the room and say, I appoint so-and-so, let me lay hands on him, you are now the apostle, right? That's not how it's done here, and that's never been how it's done. There's not been a one-to-one relationship between who was in charge and who followed. It was a spreading of the gospel from a few to many, and it was done in parallel so that the word was being spread and the gospel was being spread. Here's one way in which it started. He uses a time-honored tradition, historically, for deciding matters concerning God's will. Or, to say it another way, a time-honored way of discerning God's will with regard to some question. The casting of a lot. Here again, another historical detail that some would question and wonder, should I be doing this in my own walk? How much of this is a model? Well, let's start by just noticing something he gives as a qualification. Before he even gets into the lot process, Peter says, here is who may be considered as we think about the 12th man. He says, first, it has to be someone who's accompanied Jesus from the time his earthly ministry began with the baptism of John. That's how Jesus' earthly ministry began when he was baptized by John the Baptist. The person we select has to have been there at that moment and have followed Jesus all the way, it says, until... The resurrection and the person must be a witness to the resurrection. So the only people in this room of 120 who can be considered one of these 12 
are people who qualify under those terms. With those qualifications, there are only two men in the room who meet those qualifications. By the way, there are other men called apostles in the New Testament who do not meet those requirements. People like James, for example, or Paul. They are called apostle on the basis of their gifting and on their personal appointment by Christ, by an appearing of Christ to appoint them into the role of apostle. But there is a distinction made in Scripture between those apostles and the twelve. There are only twelve tribes of Israel, so there's only going to be twelve men who can rule over them. Those twelve are set apart in Scripture, and this is where the twelfth is decided. But apart from them, there are other apostles who have similar gifting and therefore similar powers, similar roles in the first century church. So there is a distinction, but that distinction is only significant in one way. There's only two men who meet the test. They're placed into consideration. And then we come back to this time-honored tradition here. Here's what they're literally doing. You see it most clearly in the words Peter speaks when he prays. He says, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these you have chosen. So the prayer is one that presumes a choice has been made. We are not making a choice. We know you have made the choice because you already know the hearts of these men. So there's already a determination on your part of which of these two men is the right man. Just show us. So the point of throwing a lot, in this case, or casting a lot, was only to know what God had already decided. It was not the moment of decision. And so the trust here is entirely in the belief that God has the power to bring about a, a certain result in the lot so that his will could be made known. He has the power to do that. In fact, his will is being made known every time. The distinction is between permissive will and intentional will. God can allow something or he can make something. I think that's a red herring. I think they're both the same thing when you get right down to it. But at the end of the day, God is in control. So when you throw a lot, whatever comes up, God may come up. There's no such thing as a result he's not in control of. There's no such thing as a result he didn't have something to say about. If I take an object and I throw it up like this, who determines whether it hits the ground? Whether I catch it or whether I don't catch it, I'm determining whether it hits the ground, right? Whether I act or whether I don't act, I'm still the one determining whether it hits the ground. But a lot is, by the way, is you take a piece of pottery or a vessel and you put uh, two stones in it, and one has one man's name written on it, the other has another man's name written on it, and they start shaking the pot until one falls out. First one that falls out, that's who wins. Who made the rock fall out? You've got to say God did. So the thought is, God's totally in control. It's up to him. We're not making any decisions here. We're just asking him to show us which one. That's what they do. And then they find who it is. To the last question of the night. Is this the way we are to discern God's will? Is it wrong? How would I know? It's an act of faith in the way they pursue it here. Would you agree? Based on his prayer, it would seem clear that it's an act of faith. And casting lots is a valid Old Testament method for receiving the Spirit's revelation. Because in the Old Testament, and even in this moment, as you know, with the apostles, they do not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Not in the way that the church receives it at Pentecost, certainly. That's why Pentecost happens. But now, as a New Testament believer now, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we no longer need methods to discern God's will. We have the Helper who, as Christ said, will teach us all things, already resonant. So, An act of seeking God's wisdom through signs or wonders or things like the throwing of lots or cards or dice or any of those methods that somebody might say could be a valid method of discerning God's will, they are by definition no longer an act of faith. 
There's no need for an external source of knowledge to the spirit who is already indwelled in us. Though it appears in many books of the Old Testament, as you may know, this is the last time you see it happen in the Bible. There's no New Testament experience of throwing lots, casting lots after this moment. So for the believer who would seek outward confirmations of what the inward spirit is already available to provide, it's a sign of someone who is not resting in faith. They are seeking for signs and wonders rather than listening to the spirit. So in the New Testament believer, I would argue, and I think scripture would would at least infer this, if not say it directly, there's no basis for the New Testament believer to seek those kinds of signs and wonders in place of the revealing of the spirit through the word or through prayer or through through some other uh, appointed means. So Matthias becomes the 12th apostle. Father, thank you tonight. We, uh, we gave a strong effort to the first night in terms of our time. Father, we ask that you would uh, uh, continue to open our hearts and minds to what we've learned and guide us back into the book next week and, and in weeks to come. I pray, Father, as well, that we could share this with other people so that the, the work of Luke and the book of Acts would be uh, a work we could uh, share with, uh, with other believers for their own edification, guiding us all into spreading the gospel in a new way, if that be your will. And Father, I also ask that we go home tonight safe in the weather and bring us back in in short time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.